Our God, we thank You that You're a God who acts and who speaks. And You're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And You're a God who has revealed Yourself in a glorious and beautiful picture of redemptive history and that's communicated to us in the Bible. And we ask that You would help us in these next 13 weeks to glimpse a side of, of the big picture of Scripture so that we can better see Christ and better be better readers of the Bible, of Revelation, and of reality of the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. That very day, Resurrection Day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all that had happened concerning Jesus. Wouldn't you have liked to be there? To hear the conversation that was about to take place? While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew, um, drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with one another as you walk? And they stood still looking at him, looking sad. Then one of them said, one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Can you hear their perplexity and their dejection? Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company were amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not find. And Jesus, still not revealing himself to them, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus interpreted to them, all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. These two followers got to hear a biblical theology class from Jesus. They got to have the first biblical theological conversation about how all the scriptures relate to Christ, from Christ himself. Um, listen to... Listen to um, 
how the passage continues and particularly to what these two disciples uh, said. Wouldn't, wouldn't you have liked to um, be there? So later, when their eyes were opened, they recognized with whom they had been speaking. But Jesus vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did you hear the two whiles? While he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. For the longest time, I read this passage and only, only saw one of the whiles while he walked with us on the road. And I thought their hearts burned because they were walking with Christ. They were in his presence. But notice the second while. While he opened to us the scriptures. While we can't physically walk with Christ and physically hear his voice uh, giving us a conversation or a class on biblical theology, we do, in fact, have the scriptures we, in fact, have something better than one conversation about biblical theology with Christ. We have a New Testament canon that's replete with conversations and courses on biblical theology. Remember, biblical theology teaches us the big picture of Scripture, how it's all fulfilled in Christ. Think of Matthew. Think of those first two chapters and the refrain. This took place to fulfill this. This was, said, this was said to fulfill this. Think of Paul's two Adams. Adam and Christ. Think of Hebrews. A whole sermon inspired by the Spirit. Spoken from the mouth of Christ. Remember the first line of Hebrews? In past times, God spoke in these various ways. In these last days in which we now live, God has spoken to us through His Son. And what, and what proceeds from that? A whole sermon page after page after page of biblical theology, of how the New Testament, the New Covenant, and Christ and the church fulfill the old. So, in fact, even though we don't get to walk with Christ, we have something better, namely canon. We don't have, get to have a conversation, but we do have the New Testament canon. And in fact, our hearts can burn, and we can... Um, have excitement and anticipation as those upon whom the end of the age has come who have the New Testament. So let's start with a simple definition of biblical theology. Biblical theology is concerned with helping us understand the big picture of Scripture. Biblical theology is concerned with helping us understand the big picture of Scripture. One of God's resounding refrains throughout Scripture is, I will be your God and you will be my people. Biblical theology helps us to follow the central plot throughout Scripture and see how it comes to fulfillment through the Savior for us, His people. If we're going to understand the big picture of the Bible, we first need to um, know or to review a bit about what the Bible itself is. The Bible is a divine revelation. It has a divine author. Think of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So, therefore, Scripture is both true and trustworthy. And more specific to biblical theology, it forms a coherent whole. We have, we have many texts. We have 66 books. But the canon of Scripture from 
in the beginning to Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, forms one book with one plot line throughout the whole thing. And that, that is possible because God is its primary author. But Scripture not only has a divine author, it also has human authors. Think of Second Peter 1. Men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit. So since the Bible has a d- double authorship, now think double authorship. Some people call this dual authorship. I can't really say that. It sounds like two guys are about to get ready to run, uh, turn around and shoot each other when I say it. It sounds like dual. So I say double, double authorship. And these authorships don't compete. God speaks through His people. So we don't have dictation. If God wanted to... Um, overcome their personalities and give Scripture to us all in a monolithic, just one form, one type of book, um, one type of prose. He could have done that, but He did not do that. He, he spoke truly. Scripture is both truly divine and truly human. So, therefore, we need to pay attention to um, the historical setting of Scripture. Scripture is not a modern and Western book. It's an ancient and Near Eastern book when it comes to the Old Testament and a first century book when it comes to the New. The other thing that we need to pay attention to is the different genres of Scripture. Since we're so far removed from the historical setting, we don't have an intuitive sense for the genre. When we read a book that starts once upon a time, we automatically know how to read it. When we get a bank statement in the mail, we automatically know how to read it. When you get a letter from your wife, you know how to read it. And you know that you don't read those three documents, the fairy tale, the bank statement, and the letter from your wife, in the same way. And with Scripture, likewise, there are different genres, different forms of writing. There's prophetic, there's wisdom literature, there's epistles, um, there's apocalyptic literature. And we have to read those books, those types of literature, according to their specific rules. So we have to pay attention to the form of the text. Think the, the, the easiest place to see the difference in form is to think about the Psalms. Those are poetry. It's immediately clear that when we read Deuteronomy and when we turn to Psalms, we're reading two different types of text. The next thing we need to remember about the Bible is that it's a word-act revelation. It comes to us both in words and in Acts. It tells us what God has said and what God has done. And usually it happens like this. God tells us what He's going to do. He tells the people, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. Matter of fact, He told them way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, 400 years you're going to be in slavery, then this, this, and this is going to happen. Then this, this, and this happens. And once it happened, then He interpreted for them what had happened. So it's both a word and act revelation. And lastly, the Bible is a coherent revelation. And one one way to think of Scripture is to think of it as a big puzzle with lots of pieces. And what's the first thing we want to do when we uh, get a big puzzle? Look at the cover. That that, that is a good idea. (laughs) Well, let's pretend you threw the box away for a minute. The first thing you want to do is put the frame together. And if we're going to understand the big picture of Scripture, then we've got to get our frame together. And the frame of Scripture is this. 
creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. That forms the frame of Scripture and will help us as we begin to focus in and, and, get, and then also get a, a, a glimpse of the whole. So creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. If we're going to read Scripture well and get a glimpse of the big picture, we need to remember that context is king. There are three contexts that we need to consider. The close context the continuing context, and the complete context. The close context, the continuing context, and the complete context. So first, we need to look down at the close context. Back to our puzzle illustration. If you're going to put a piece in that puzzle, you need to pick the piece up, you need to look at its shape, look at its colors, and find the proper place for it, the proper context. Likewise with Scripture, when we're reading a particular verse, we need to realize that that verse didn't come to us out of a black hole. It comes to us in a sentence, in a paragraph, maybe in the midst of an argument, in, a, in the section of a book. Think of um, Jesus' words in Matthew 6.25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, that verse starts with therefore. So, as we all know, we need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And then we need to understand that this verse comes to us in the midst of one of the five blocks of teaching in Matthew's gospel. That's the larger structure of the gospel. You have um, fulfillment in the beginning. Then you have the acts of Jesus, teaching. Acts of Jesus, teaching. Acts of Jesus, teaching. You have five of these big blocks of teaching. So the next question becomes, which block am I in? This one happens to be the Sermon on the Mount. And, and since, um, just, just think if you, if you open the Bible and you just read this verse in a vacuum. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. That verse by itself, would, a, pro, a proper interpretation might be, God's telling us, don't be so picky about what you eat, about what you drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. But that's actually not the point of the verse. So if we're going to understand Scripture, we need to understand the close, the close context. And in terms of genre, the Gospels are best described as biographies. They're first century biographies about Jesus. And each, each time we open the Bible, we need to think about those questions. Where, how, where does this piece come? What is its context? What is its color? What's its texture? After we give attention to this close context, we, need, we are then ready to look back at the continuing context. So we look down, and now we're looking back at the continuing context. Let's return to our puzzle illustration. So far we have the frame intact, and we know how to put a particular piece in. But if we're going to make progress, um, we need some larger sections to be put together and then to see how those sections fit together as a whole. 
Now, if the big picture, if if the big picture is a beautiful portrait, if the big picture of the Bible is a beautiful portrait of how our triune God is going to redeem us, of how the the holy God will in fact be God to a sinful people, those large sections of the puzzle will be signposts that begin to point to and portray the Savior. So those large sections of Scripture that we're about to put together are going to be signposts that point to and portray the Savior. They picture Him. They start to bring together what He looks like, what He's like, His character. So they point to how, how do we get to Him. And they begin to tell us what He's like. And those large sections are called covenants. So in terms of the um, continuing context, what we're concerned with are the biblical covenants. Now, I'm not going to cover the specifics of every biblical covenant. That will be covered in future classes. That's what many of the future classes are going to consist of. There's going to be three classes on the uh, covenant with Adam. There's going to be a class on the covenant with Noah. There's going to be a class on the covenant with Abraham and his family. There's going to be a class on the uh, covenant with Israel through Moses. Another class on the covenant, of da- the covenant with David and his sons. And then several classes on the new covenant. So there's six major biblical covenants. The covenant with, of creation with Adam, the covenant with Noah and his sons, the covenant with Abraham and his family, the covenant with Israel through Moses, the covenant with David and his sons, and the new covenant in Christ. So what I want to do is give you a description and some of the large-scale characteristics of covenant. So as you come to these individual covenants, you have a framework with which to understand them. The word covenant tells us something about who God is and how he acts. It tells us that God enters into relationship with his creation and with his creatures. Let's rehearse scripture's refrain once more. Exodus 6-7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. More specifically, A covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties ordered according to specific promises. Again, a covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties ordered according to specific promises. One helpful way to understand ancient Near Eastern covenants is to compare them with modern Western contracts. So we want to compare and contrast ancient Near Eastern covenants with modern Western contracts. And they have similarities, but they have very important differences. So both, so in terms of similarities, both types, that is covenant and contract, both types of agreements involve at least two parties and require obligations. Both types of agreements involve advantages or benefits for obedience Um, to those obligations and some type of punishment for disobedience to the obligations. So those are the similarities. Now listen to the differences. And these are on your sheet. Um, While a contract involves a relationship for the sake of obligations, that is the relationship is secondary, a covenant involves obligations for the sake of a relationship. That is, the relationship is primary. Um, Now, while the word covenant has largely fallen out of use, 
As Christians, we know one common relationship that can only be properly described as a covenant, namely marriage. Um, the relationship in marriage is the goal. And the vials, I can never say that word either, um, the promises that you make to each other serve the relationship. Um, in traditional weddings, as well, in, as well as in ancient Near Eastern covenants, Meals are often shared between the two parties after the wedding, after the covenant-making ceremony. And this is the first foretaste of the purpose of the covenant. The covenant is for relationship, for fellowship, for intimacy. Um, so a few characteristics of covenants, several characteristics of biblical covenants. God's covenants are part of God's one plan of salvation. This is also on your, on your handout. God's covenants are part of God's one plan of salvation. Multiple covenants do not entail multiple ways of salvation. There is one plan of God uh, for redemption, and the covenants unfold that one plan. So the covenants should be pictured like this. Let's see, let's do it down here. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David. No, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, New Covenant. Now notice, they're overlapping. It's not this covenant full stop. That covenant, full stop. That covenant, full stop. Now they build on one another and they find their fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ. And, this is important, the church. They find their fulfillment, all the previous covenants find their fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ and the church. So as we, as we go through this, you have to remember that we're talking about History and literature, not science and math. So there's going to be a lot of overlap and a bit of messiness. Everything's not going to be just in its nice little box. There's, there's an there's a interconnectedness that takes place because we're talking about history and literature and not um, math and science. So um, God's covenants, next characteristic, God's covenants are connected and progress from one to another, just like we just showed. Think of the way the covenant, um, think of the way covenant developed through the seed promised in Genesis 3.15. Now, is, when I say Genesis 3.15, are most of you familiar with what, what, like, does a verse come to your mind? You can just do this. Okay, Genesis 3.15 is the um, seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, I'm going to run, I'm going to take that trajectory and I'm going to run through the whole Bible with it, okay? And then, as we get, go through the rest of the class, it'll become more clear of why I've done what I've done. So, put your seatbelt on. <laughs> uh, you think these are trajectories, so if we run through them, you, you are, you are, um, not dejected. You are, what, do we call, what am I trying to say? You are propelled. I, I can't get the word. Anyway, all right, so let's run through this trajectory. 
And as we run through it, think, think two words. Offspring and son. So I said seed. A lot of translations say offspring. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the offspring of the, of the serpent. And then it goes on to say, the serpent's offspring will bruise the seed of the woman's heel, and he will crush his head. And at my house, we always do this when we talk about that with the kids. <laughs> nah. what, 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 what are we supposed to do to serpents? Crush their head, Daddy. Um, all right, so let's, let's run through that, run through that, um, through that trajectory. So, beginning with Adam, the first son of God, he sins. And then there's a promise made in Genesis 3.15, which, which we just characterized. Then, after that, we get the Noahic, the Noahic covenant. And listen to what God says in the Noahic covenant. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth. So we hear there, it's made to Noah and his seed, his sons, and we see a continuity with the creation coming. Remember, God um, said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and have dominion. Now, there's a piece added here talking about the fear of creation towards Noah because of the fall. So we have continuity, but we also have something added because this is post-fall. So this, this promise continues from Adam through Zeth, through Noah and his sons, and then it and then it continues on through Shem. And then God's people disobey in an intervening period in um, Genesis 11. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread out. What do they do? They come together and go up. Instead of spreading out, they come together and try to build their own way to God. They build an ancient Near Eastern ziggurat that's supposed to take them to God. But then God confuses their languages, disperses them, and he makes a promise um, to Abraham. Now, he makes a promise to Abraham and his offspring in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 15, we get this beautiful picture of what's going to happen. If an ancient Israelite's reading Genesis 15... They're shocked, and I'll point out to you where, where they're shocked. In Genesis 15, Abraham has a vision, and, he, and God promises that um, he will give him offspring that are like the stars of the sky. It's not the exact number. When people say that, and they say it's the, like the number of the stars of the sky, and they articulate it as if there's going to be exactly the amount of children as there are stars in the sky. That's impossible. We know there's billions and billions and billions and billions and trillions of stars in the sky. It's like the stars in the sky. It's a metaphor. Um, so he says that, and then he says, for 400 years you're going to be in slavery, then I'm going to let you go, and then the covenant is going to continue. Now listen to what God does. He, he, he starts by just the normal ancient Near Eastern covenant-making process. They take animals and they split them apart. That sounds strange to us. The Israelites reading along, he's used to that. But then a smoking fire plot and a flaming torch walk through there. And then what happens next is what doesn't happen. The smoking fire plot and the flaming torch is the only one to walk through the split animals. And by walking through the split animals, 
the smoking fire pot and flaming torch is saying, if I disobey the covenant, let its curses be upon me. Now the question becomes, who's the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? And we need to remind ourselves that Moses is writing Genesis, human author. He's writing to the Israelites who have been in the desert for 40 years, being guided by a pillar of cloud, a smoking of, um, I'm saying it wrong, a, a cloud and a smoking torch went through the animals. And they've been being guided by that pillar of cloud by day to give them shade and the smoking and the fire by night to keep them warm and to give them light. So who walks through the animals? Yahweh himself walks through the animals. Now, who doesn't walk through the animals? Abraham. So Yahweh's saying, I'm going to keep both sides of the covenant. I'm going to be obedient for its blessings. And I'm going to take upon myself this curses. And I left out part of the directory. trajectory. By the time we get to Abraham, it's absolutely crystal clear that this human partner of the covenant ain't going to cut it. Adam sins. Noah, restart with Noah. Wipe the whole, out, whole, um, whole earth out, re- reboot Noah. What's Noah do? Same thing Adam did. He grows some fruit. He gets drunk with it. His nakedness is uncovered and he's ashamed. So we have a, a new creation story that ends dismally like the first one. So by the time we get to Abraham, it's totally clear that something's got to give. A human partner alone isn't going to cut it. So remember, covenants are signposts that portray and point to the Savior. So what do we know about the Savior now? We know that he's going to have to be truly human and truly divine. Because who walks through the, the smoking fire, the, the split animals? Yahweh. So the Savior is going to have to be a human covenant partner who in fact is Yahweh. So then, the, um, we have, let's skip to David. We have David, and the, 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 the promise is going to continue from, through David and his sons. And then, we have, and then Psalm 2 comments on that and says, I will tell the decree Yahweh said to me, speaking of the Davidic king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then we see in Matthew, Matthew is portraying to us Jesus as a faithful son, as a new Israel and a new David. Think of how the genealogy of Matthew ends. The son of Abraham, the son of David. And so what connects those? Israel. So we have Jesus is a new Israel. And we know that because Matthew tells us as much. He says, And he rose up and took the child, that is Joseph, rose up and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea 11.1 and it's originally talking about Israel. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And, you know, Hosea is not making that up. He's, he, he's, uh, he has every right to call Israel um, God's son because in Exodus 4.22 we read, Then, Yahweh speaking, then, or, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. So what Matthew is telling us is that 
this new son. He's taking the place of Adam and Noah and Israel and Abraham. And then we get to Matthew three fifteen to 17 at Jesus's baptism. And Jesus and John are having a back and forth. John's saying, look, you should baptize me. Jesus is saying, no, this is fulfilling to fulfill all righteousness. But Jesus answered him, that is, answered John, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit descending on on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven picking up on um, Isaiah 42.1 and Psalm 2.7. The voice says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we can continue from there. So what happens? Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. Then where does he go? Just like Israel goes to be tempted by Satan. And, but unlike, he's also redoing what Adam did. But unlike Adam, he's not in a nice plush garden with all these trees to eat. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter comes to him after that point. And then what happens? He goes up on a mountain and proclaims um, the, the law to his people. So he's a new Adam, a new Israel, and a new Moses. Jesus fulfills all the covenants. The other thing to notice about covenants, back to the characteristics, is that they're unconditional and conditional. This is important. What, um, it, it can seem pedagogically helpful and nice and neat to divide the covenants between this is a gracious covenant this is a, a works-based covenant. So a lot of people will say, um, the Abrahamic covenant, that's a gracious covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, that's a works covenant. But the problem with that is, the Abrahamic covenant requires obedience, and the Mosaic covenant um, is gracious. So um, in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 17... So think back to Abraham, promises, Genesis 12. Um, covenant ceremony, Genesis 15. Circumcision, the affirmation of the covenant, Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abraham. Side note, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. So when you read the word Yahweh, caps lock, L-O-R-D, you should be thinking covenant God. The author's not using that word because he just needed to switch it up a bit and didn't want to use the same word all the time. He's trying to communicate something by using that word. Mm-hmm. Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am, your God, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Obedience is required. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Take your son, your only son, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And then right when Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, um, the angel says, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear me. And Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And then Yahweh says, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this, obedience, because you have done this, 
and have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you. So you see, even in that small context, what's the place called? The Lord will provide grace. What's Abraham have to to do? He has to obey. The same way with the Mosaic Covenant, but the inverse emphasis. We would think, read the Mosaic Covenant and think works, 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 works. But what does God do first before he gives the Mosaic Covenant? He brings them like um, on wings of eagles out of Egypt. He delivers them first. And that's Exodus um, 3, verses 3 to 6. All right. God's covenants are revelatory. We've, ar- we've already covered that. They show God's faithful character, that he's a covenant-keeping God, and they begin to show us the Savior. And God's covenants reveal his plan. Um, and then lastly, God's covenants prepare us for the promised one. The best one to think of here is the Mosaic Covenant. Think of all the, what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant. You have a priesthood, you have sacrifices, and all these things, all these um, details of the Mosaic Covenant are meant to prepare us for the promised one. All right, I got four minutes left. Uh, aren't you proud of me that I know? Um, so now we've got to put the larger pieces of the puzzle together. And this could be a class in itself. But what, so we've looked, we've looked down at the close context. We've looked back at the continuing context. Now we need to look ahead. We need to take a glimpse at the, at the box of the puzzle for the continuing context. And this, the, the way we characterize this is the reason for all the different um, nuances and denominations among Protestantism. If you think, why do we baptize um, only believers rather than believers and their children? Or if you think, um, why do I hold the particular view of um, the spiritual gifts that I do? Or um, why does Heritage Baptist Church have elder-led congregationalism? All those questions are answered by the complete context. They're answered by how do promises get fulfilled in the New Testament and how are they carried over to the church? All right, I've got to make this quick. So, promise and fulfillment's not best thought of. Promise, Hail Mary pass, boom, catch it, fulfillment. One just boom, boom. It's not, it's not like that. It's more like a mountain range. From way back, as you drive up to a mountain range, it looks like they're all on one um, level. They're all at the same depth. But as you get closer, you realize, well, here's one, and then there's one, and then there's one. That's how fulfillment works in Scripture. It's not promise, boom, fulfillment. It's more like this. There's there's lots of partial fulfillment throughout Scripture. It would be like, you need a good illustration for fulfillment is if we had a cup of a cup here, we're pouring water into it, and as we go through Scripture, it gets a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until it's filled full in Christ, His life, His death, His works, His miracles, His resurrection, His ascension, and His session. And those aren't just pretty words. I'm trying to say that it's a whole matrix of events that fulfills the New Testament. Um, and so, but that's not all. The cup's just not filled to the brim. Rather, it's overfilled. It overflows to the church and its members, to Christ's people. So it's not just full, when you think fulfillment, don't think full stop, boom, over. No, think filter. How do we know what goes, what continues from Old Testament into New Testament? We look at Christ because He's the filter. How do we... How do we get to be part of the new covenant 
that wasn't in fact promised to us. Who's it promised to? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. How do we get connected to the new covenant? By, whole, by faith in the new Israel. See, in the Old Testament, Israel is characterized as an unfaithful vine. It's producing all this bad fruit. And then what, what does Jesus come along and say in John 15? I am the true vine. And how do we get connected to the true vine? By faith. So it's by our faith in the true vine. And, and, and why is the new covenant so secure? Because it's made with Christ. And you're only connected to it by faith in Him. He's the faithful covenant partner. Um, and then the, the last thing, two last things. One, as fulfillment takes place, we need to think already, not yet. This is why the, the disciples were so dejected and, and confused. Because from the Old Testament, looking at those mountains, only one range, only one coming of the Messiah, only one resurrection. They couldn't see that there's going to be a first coming and then a time period and then a second coming. That we call the overlap of the ages. But already not yet. So the Bible has two ages, this age and the age to come. So creation and new creation and the cross. And what happens is the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the session bring new creation realities into the last days that in which we live. So the Bible can literally say, it doesn't, in, in, the, in the original text, it doesn't say you are a new creation. It says you are new creation. You are literally part of the new creation. In the first creation, God made the place and then the people. In the new creation, God makes the people, then the place. And let me. And one last thing, very last thing, types. That's in, uh, that's important because fulfillment and fulfillment and typology connect all the covenants. They're two interconnected um, lines that fulfill all the covenants. Fulfillment, promise, and fulfillment is the main line, and that takes place through typology. Typology sounds like a nice theological, pretty word, but it's really not that hard. Just think of the English word type. So. What is, Christ, what is Adam? He's a type of Christ. What is Noah? He's a type of Christ. Think of temple. What is the garden? It's the place where you meet God. It's a garden temple. Who's the fulfillment of the temple? But where we meet God? Jesus in John 2. Destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. But remember, last line, the cup's not only filled to the brim, it overflows to Christ's people, the church. So you by yourself... You're a temple. You're like the um, holy place. But what we're about to go do in the other room, the room's not the most holy place. But we, brothers and sisters, as we gather, not you alone in your prayer closet, but as we gather as a church today, we are the holy of holies. And Christ, as Master Mark taught us in Revelation, walks among his churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the big picture of the Bible and I ask that you would help my brothers and sisters to take in some of what I said. I know that was fast. And Lord, I ask that through this class, we would all be have a new love for Christ, a new desire to read the Bible. Lord, I need that. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen.